Thank you for joining me on another episode of Better Than I Found It, the podcast all things college golf. This is Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor University. Today's guest on Better Than I Found It is former Texas A&M golfer Matt Van Zandt. As is the case with many of my guests, Matt describes the impact his father had on his golf as a young player. He also tells us what made JT Higgins, his college coach, so successful. We reminisce about the 2009 NCAA championship in Inverness, which his team won. Now, Matt's role in that team was very unique, and I think went way deeper than just the scores he posted. His leadership skills are apparent, and his humility quite palpable. We also talk about his time with College Golf Fellowship following his playing days. You'll really like this interview with Matt. Okay, better than I found it, listeners. I've got a special guest that I want you to welcome to the podcast today. Matt Van Zandt, former Texas A&M golfer. And Matt is a dear friend of mine, somebody I've known for a long, long time. Competed against Matt, but also have been a, a uh, walked arm in arm with him uh, in his career after college. So, uh, Matt, thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you. Coach, it's awesome to be here. Have a a high respect for you and a deep love for you. So this is a great uh, honor for me. Well, um, you know, I don't think a lot of people know who Matt Van Zandt is. I know Texas A&M people do, certainly in the golf program. Uh, People that grew up in your era of junior golf know who you are in Texas because you were one of the better players in Texas. So those people do. But if you talk about people maybe listening to this podcast or a modern day junior golfer or a parent of a modern day junior golfer, they're not going to know who you are. But you have a very interesting history in college golf that I want to talk about. And um, your role that you played in your golf team was pretty unique. And you actually played on a national championship team. Uh, I was there that week when it happened. So um, I guess if we're going to start this, we probably ought to go back to your junior career. You know, I remember watching. I remember getting an email from you when I was at Oklahoma State. Uh, I think I was the assistant coach the first time you sent an email and it came straight from Mike Holder's computer <laughs> to my computer because yeah. uh, anyway, uh, but that, I do remember your name because it was unusual. Yeah. And let's just talk about your junior career. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. Uh, my dad's a dentist and loves the game and has got me into the game at an early age. And, uh, you know, I would say I had moderate success. I always encourage, uh, I always encourage young guys and say my first high school tournament, I remember I shot 77, 85, the first tournament I ever played in. And I thought that was like really good. <laughs> uh, so there is, you know, there's still time to improve even when you get into high school. But, uh, you know, I had moderate success, I would say, when it came down to recruiting time. Um, you know, I was kind of a kid that was begging for a a spot on a on a bigger team. And I had kind of all the offers to the kind of mid-major Texas schools. And uh, but I really wanted to go to a, a big, big school. And my brother, uh, who was uh, four, five, almost five years older than me, he uh, was at AM. And so there was a, a, a draw to AM. And uh, I ended up getting a essentially a recruited walk on position. I, I got a little bit of scholarship. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, the highlights of my junior career was. Um, really around my high school team. I played on a really good high school team and we won the state championship in 2003. And uh, Lance Lopez was a teammate of mine who was best player in Texas. And uh, and another guy named Drew Allen Spock who ended up going to Indiana. And um, so we had a really good 
and competitive high school team. And I just kind of always, uh, I, I was good enough to get recruited, but I was not in kind of the upper echelon of the recruiting cycle for the big schools. No, but you were a competitive kid in, in, in probably one of the most competitive junior golf states in the United States of America. So you obviously were doing pretty well. And it spoke to speaking to that is you had a lot of offers to mid-majors. There was no doubt coaches wanted you to play on their team. So talk about that recruitment to Texas A&M. How did you talk JT Higgins into that? Because that's not always easy because yeah. it, it may not cost him anything academic or scholarship wise too much, but it's also another human being you're responsible for. How'd you talk him into that? Well, I remember uh, getting, um, and I joke with JT to this day about this, but I, I in some ways say that I was a way to Lance Lopez, but for JT Higgins. <laughs> but uh, uh, I remember going on my recruiting trip and being very excited. And, you know, for a, a kid who was probably deeply insecure, I remember sitting in front of him in that scholarship conversation and him saying he was going to give us $800 a year in book scholarship and me feeling like somebody just valued me at $800. <laughs> uh, you know, that was a, that was a tough, a tough pill to swallow, but, you know, I actually ended up going and looking at another school, university of Arkansas and had a bigger scholarship to go there. And it, it was a wonderful place, but if I was honest, I really wanted to go to A&M and um, I, I feel like I liked uh, JT from the start and uh, obviously A&M was at the, really the beginning of building their golf program out. Um, JT had been there, I think to, it had been his third year there, I believe. And, uh, you know, honestly, it was a good fit and I loved the school. I want, I would have loved to have gone to the school, even if I didn't play golf, which I think is an important um, process. Part of the That's process. a good point you bring up. I usually ask a recruit and his parents that in that, in the recruiting process, like if, if I wasn't in this office and we didn't have a very good golf program, is Baylor a place you might like to go? And it, sometimes if the answer is no, that might not be very good recruiting <laughs> because he might think, well, maybe he really doesn't want to come here, but that, that's good that you bring that up. Kids need to look at it. Like the university is what you're going there for that experience too. Yeah. And I mean, also coach had already had some big recruits and I mean, Bobby Gates had committed in my class and he was truthfully one of the best recruits in the whole country. Uh, and then Martin Pillar was obviously one of the best recruits in Texas and so I was uh, excited at the possibility of of joining that group of guys. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel really fortunate. And then obviously to go to a, a place where my brother was, um, was going to be something that I was uh, excited about. Well, you know, you, um, you mentioned a couple of your teammates, Martin Pillar, who's played pro golf for a long time. Bobby Gates played pro golf. And by the way, that was one of the great recruiting jobs in the history of college golf. He's from Gainesville, Florida, and, and Buddy Alexander was the coach, and he's the best, one of the best players in the country. Yeah. And JT got him to come to, to College Station. That's pretty amazing. Uh, not sure we'll see a, a recruiting job much better than that one. Um, but you, you mentioned those two guys, but you had a bunch of other really good teammates. So we're going to kind of meander our way through your team while yeah. you were there. And uh, I'm going to mention an article that Ron Balicki wrote. The late, great Ron Balicki, one of the great, truly great sports journalists I've ever even seen in my life. He covered college golf with uh, like a, a fever pitch all the time. He loved college golf and he wrote a really neat article about you. And I know you had mixed emotions about it, but at the time. But anyway, let's talk about your teammates. You guys, you mentioned two already that ended up playing professional yeah, golf. Yeah, so 
I mean, starting off, I think uh, I, I played with a guy named Andrew Parr, who nobody probably knows, of, but he was a pretty darn good college player. And but more, he was a great leader and a wonderful. Like his work ethic was impeccable, and he was somebody that I looked up to. In his senior year, he played pretty darn good. And uh, and then obviously uh, Bobby Gates, what we mentioned earlier, Bobby kind of hit the ground running and and pretty much immediately jumped into the lineup as a freshman and. Martin had a lot of success early. Uh, and then the next year we were, you know, coach had landed Bronson Burgoon, who was, who had been a friend of mine for a long time. And, uh, and Bronson ended up going to be going on to be a first team all American, I think just his senior year, but may have been a multi, I mean, he was a multiple time all American. Uh, and Bronson is still playing on the PJ tour right now. And uh, Bobby played for, I, I believe something like eight years, uh, five years on the tour or six years on the big tour, but eight years total. And Martin played for like 14 years and uh, just recently hung him up. And, uh, and then we had uh, Andrea Pavon who uh, was from Rome, Italy and came over and he's uh, on the European tour right now. He's won at least once, I think maybe twice. Um, and then we had, Nacho Elvira, who was from Spain, and he came over and he was a spectacular player. And he uh, won on uh, the he's won on the European Tour, I believe, just once, but he lost a playoff this last week. And uh, you know, Conrad Schindler went out and he played on the big tour, I believe, one year, but multiple years on the Corn Ferry Tour. Um, John Hurley played on the Corn Ferry Tour one year, uh, longest guy in college golf. Uh, truly, he came on a visit to Oklahoma State and. <laughs> It, I, I looked at him first of all he looked like he must have been a football player he did not look like a golfer yeah and he absolutely bombed the ball in college it was crazy yeah so I mean looking back I I and I know people I, I get I tell I joke with people I I feel like I get a lot of credit that I don't deserve for the success of my team and I'm not trying to say I was a terrible college player but um, I was really surrounded by I, I was surrounded by really good golfers and I don't even realize that I don't think I realized that at the time as much as I realize that now. Well, I think it's hard to ever realize anything as you're going through it. I mean, like right now, there's something that's going on in my life that I think is either great or bad or whatever, but I'm not going to realize it for years how it really was in my life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that you just mentioned all those tour players. I don't think you missed anybody. I think I remember every one of those players and some of them are still playing today. But Ron Balicki wrote an article. Ron was an amazing journalist. He was yeah. phenomenal. And his feature articles were incredible because he actually captured the person every time. I just think I don't know anybody that does a better job of it. But he wrote an article. Tell me about that article and how you reacted to it sort of when it came out. Yeah. So Ron and I had developed a good friendship in college golf. And um, I couldn't agree more uh, that Ron really tried to capture the person um, of the college golfer, not just the results. And he and I had built a friendship and uh, talked often at different tournaments. And um, he didn't even tell me he was going to write this article, but he wrote a, a really long article around the national championship. And I can't remember what day it came out, but it was sometime, it could even be between rounds or something like that. But, and essentially the gist of the article was that, um, sometimes people contribute uh, other things than just golf scores to the team. And I, I would, it was an honoring uh, article to me. I was, and, and you, what, you, what you're alluding to was 
in some ways, and even still now, Sean Martin, I joke about this because it was somewhat uh, also pointing out the mediocre golf that I was playing. <laughs> Uh, and, but, you know, I have always uh, enjoyed leadership. Uh, I value teams. I've really, I, I really took to heart, uh, the team atmosphere in college. And I bet even my college teammates, they may listen to this and make fun of me and remember back to the silly things I did. But I mean, I did, I really took an effort to try to create camaraderie on the team, uh, to do, you know, to win together also to lose together to be punished together uh and you know i had the honor of being named uh whatever you call captain Uh, i think that's what we called it at um even in my when i was a sophomore and uh just was able to be uh just a leader on the team in a way that wasn't just about the bottom line uh the golf score i shot at the end of the day and it was a super honoring article, and uh, I loved Ron for that. Uh, but I think what you're talking about, the conflicting part, was there was a deep insecurity at times about my golf scores and wishing that I was better. And, you know, I mean, looking back, I definitely wasn't as bad as I felt like I was in the moment. Um, I mean, I played probably half the time on a and I, you know, finished in the top five college events a few times. And uh, so I did have some success, but I mean, relative to kind of the guys I was walking with, it just felt like I was just a bump on the log or something. Well, when a coach does as good a job as JT did of amassing that much talent, it's pretty easy to get lost in the in the shuffle there. But I had a player about your generation, just a little younger than you, named Michael Miller. Michael's yeah. dad, Lindy, had played golf at Oklahoma State. Literally, I I say that any golf historian would put him in your top 10 all-time collegiate players, not professionals, but in college. He's a top 10 guy. He's that good. And his son, Michael, wasn't as good, but he did finish third in the state high school championship. And he wanted to walk on at Oklahoma State, and I took him. And I I, I look back on it, and he was probably the MVP on that team for four years Mm -hmm. because with all those egos running around there, and there were a lot of them, great players with egos, Michael knew how to to bring him down to, you know, we're just human beings here and we're just buddies. And he was the glue that held that team together. And when I looked at you from afar, other than you were playing a little bit better golf than Michael was, Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, uh, you guys fill the same role. I know what you were doing for that team at A&M. It was so easy to see. And you had such a dynamic personality. So what I want the listeners out here to get is, you have other ways to contribute other than just shooting 68, don't you think? Oh, for sure. And I mean, honestly, those things you're going to be able to carry on much longer than you're going to be carrying on your golf game. Because, um, you know, thankfully, when I was a sophomore in high school, I became a Christian. And it that really changed the trajectory of my life to where... Um, I, I think I've always loved people, but I think that changed from where I used to love people be, to really in almost in a selfish way, I, I wanted it to, I wanted to gain their approval to, I began to actually be able to serve people and I wanted to see other people succeed. And so, uh, you know, that just kind of set me off on a, on a trajectory that I till to this day, I mean, I, I seek and want to honor and serve and help people progress and whether it's their career or 
you know, their financial situation, like I do a lot right now, or I still meet with and, and spend some time with some of these young high school college, uh, high school golfers who are local here in Houston and just try to help them navigate. And, and I just, I genuinely just like doing that. And that's not anything that age is, I'm never going to age out of that. Um, I will age out of golf. I'm not as relevant in golf as I used to be. Um, but, and that's okay. But, uh, it, to me, that is where the sweet part of life is. And, and if, if you ask me, would you rather have Ron Blicky have written an article about that? Or would you rather him written about, you know, how uh, great my golf was, even though maybe I wasn't, uh, I didn't care for people very well. I mean, I, in my sober moments, I would obviously want him to write about my character and, and I want to be that kind of man, uh, even though I know I still fall short, uh, drastically, but, uh, I even had lunch today with a, with an older guy, um, not an older guy, but you know, in his fifties who has a high school son. And I was just encouraging him and his son who plays golf and is getting frustrated, um, just encouraged him to just remind him of his identity of who he is as your son and that you love him. And, uh, and I just think those are the things that in 50 years, I'm not going to regret having poured my life out over a person. Um, you know, and you know what I go months without even thinking about the national championship. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just, it's sweet and it's a great memory, but it, it doesn't, it didn't like complete my life. No, and it, it will never complete your life. I mean, you could win four national championships, go on and win ten majors, and none of that matters if you don't if you're not content and and if if you're not in that space where you need to be. And for you and I, that's you know walking our faith and what we believe yeah. and that type of thing. So, but let's do talk about the 2009 NCAA and and okay. I'm I'm going to circle back to what you just talked about about mentoring young kids and and because i'm going to ask a question about coaching right there but but 2009 ncaa my team was ranked number one in the country going in we had just won the regional by 20 um had been the number one team the whole year won the stroke play that week by a bunch and we got beaten the first round of match play um so that that's not the greatest memory but it also it reminds me of how humbling this game is because it just doesn't matter if you have the best team you're not always going to win and we didn't, but I know that JT felt like they had a chance to do well. I, I interviewed him on this podcast and he was, he said, coach, we going in, we thought we had a chance. And so let's take you back. Give me your like vivid memories of that week, short of just the one vivid memory of Bronson Bragoon hitting a sandwich out of the rough to a foot. Uh, What, what do you remember about that week? Well, I do, you know, I, I, J, JT in some ways was somewhat of like a hopeless romantic when it came to our, uh, our, uh, upside, you know, he, he was all, he always truly believed that we could achieve that. And even if maybe he didn't believe it, he would still say it out loud to try to try to believe it. And, um, so he, he was, and he was very good about, uh, casting a high ceiling for our team and, and we did. I mean, we had had Bronson had had an unbelievable year that year. Andrea, I believe, had had a pretty good year, but had kind of been up and down when um, we had just had a really competitive team. I mean, I I I played that week as the number four guy, I think. And the guy we left at home was Nacho Elvira, who was I mean, he's really good. And yeah, you did he, something to beat that guy out. For yeah, the I mean, 
And, you know, I mean, it's just funny looking back. I mean, I did. I played really well. I played my best golf my last semester. And so there wasn't really even a time where my I think I even finished in the top 10 at regionals that year or something like that. And so I played my best golf coming into uh, that tournament. And, you know, obviously Inverness, amazing golf course, real a real test. Um, you, you can't fake it around there. And we went out and, you know, we, um, we, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember honestly what we did the first or the second day, like in regards to where we were, but I don't remember anything, you know, we were just kind of hanging around and what I do remember, and this is where I kind of pick up my memories a little clearer here is, uh, going into the back nine, uh, we were, we were, I believe out of it and Conrad mm -hmm. Schindler, had made it, he made a hole in one on uh the last day and uh you're, you're speaking was, last day of stroke play last day of stroke play excuse yeah, me yeah. and then i think he shot 32 maybe 31 on his back nine for us to tie for seventh with georgia um in the stroke play and then obviously uh had we finished eighth we would have faced you guys and mm -hmm. who knows how that would have gone maybe Maybe we would have still come out ahead, um, but that would have been a lot more difficult. But, uh, you know, then that went to a uh, the fifth man was the tiebreaker. And mm -hmm. truthfully, you know, I I really only counted one round. I mean, that was I tied with another guy. I shot I can't remember 77, 76, 76 or something like that. I did not play particularly well, um, but my my cumulative score was lower than Adam Mitchell, which is hilarious because he was a Walker cupper. Uh, that guy was unbelievable too. Runner up in the USAM. He's a great player. It's no, it gets no credit. Uh, and but because of that, we were the seventh seed and went on to play Arizona State. And you, uh, and Georgia was the number eight mm -hmm. seed. And went on to play you, which led to one of the greatest matches in history. I know you came out on the not non favorable side of that, but I was there when uh, Brian and Ricky came down on the 18th hole and uh, just remember like it was yesterday. Well, like what Brian did on those last four holes was un unthinkable. And and Ricky played fine on the last four holes. He sure did. He was one under par in those holes, but yeah. it wasn't good enough to beat what what uh, Brian was doing. But, you know, um, so I walked with you in that final round of stroke play because I'm playing. I'm walking with Peter Uline during all the whole week. I walked with Peter the entire week and you play with Peter the last round. And Peter actually played very well that week. He, his game had really gotten good by the end of the year. He was playing beautifully. But you got off to a dreadful start, as I recall. I mean, dreadful. Yeah. But you absolutely just fought all day long. And I, you made some birdies on that back nine. It was like, I, yeah. I don't even remember what you shot, but it could have been 82 or three easily. And you salvaged a 75 or six. Yeah. And they used your score. I believe you tied for the score. Yeah. They, right? Yeah, I, I don't remember which day it was, but I did. I tied for one of the scores. But the bigger thing was the cumulative. My mm -hmm. cumulative score was lower than Georgia's. Yeah, uh, you didn't give up. Georgia. Right. Pretty and amazing. So but I remember watching that. Say it again. That's where that would have been most valuable. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you guys ended up making match play. You played Arizona State in the first match. Who did you play in the second match? Uh, Michigan, which was okay. a home, which was against, uh, you know, they were right down the road since we were in Ohio and man, they had a lot of people there. And that was crazy. Cause that match came down to my last match on the 18th hole. And uh, I remember 
being in the fairway and uh and the guy the mission guy was behind me and he hit it and he flew it into the back bunker mm. which the back bunker on 18 was dead <laughs> totally and dead. I, I just remember thinking if i could just get this on the green <laughs> and, by the and way I, for I a short it. par four it's one of the most difficult oh little God. greens to hit it's not easy yeah. It's not easy. And I hit it, you know, I probably had 25 feet in uh, for, for birdie. And I was like, okay, great. And then he just made a mess. So he bladed his bunker shot over the green and then he chipped it back outside of my, uh, out of my coin. And he walks up and he just shakes my hand and gives me the match. And I was so nervous. And I was just thinking, <laughs> thank God I didn't have to putt that. <laughs> Cause there were probably a thousand people surrounding that green. It was so fun. I wasn't even aware that your match put you guys into the finals. So that's yeah, great. And you played University of Arkansas. Brad McMakin had been there just a couple of years and had already built a really great program. And um, so, I mean, we could go through the minutia of the whole round if you'd like. But I, I look at what will go down as one of the greatest finishes in the history of college golf. Yep. Bronson, who was playing Andrew Landry. Mm -hmm. uh he lost a three or four bleed in that right yeah he was uh he was four up with five to play and i remember right. uh, uh i lost my match and i and conrad lost his but we were four and five so we were first off and then andrea won like eight and seven and uh john hurley won like six and five and so they were done super early so we were all done early and we ran back and and I remember we met uh Bronson on what would have been, I guess, 14 green. And he lost uh yeah, he lost 14. So he was four up, now he's three up. And then he goes on to lose 15, 16, and 17. Hmm. And then 18, Andrew Landry hits it right down the middle, and Bronson just sends it dead right into the rough. And we're sitting here going, man. Oh, I mean, in some ways I was like, I don't even care about the national championship anymore. I just want Bronson to be okay. Uh, Cause I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how you come back from this. And I remember Andrew Landry hit his shot and it kind of floated up in the wind and it came up like 40 feet short or so. And, you know, 18 at Inverness is not long. And so Bronson probably only had a hundred and I don't know, 20 yards or so in, um, but just to a treacherous green and from the rough where the rough was really thick. Uh, and he hit that shot and just landed in the perfect position. And I was up by the green watching it in the air. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be good. And if you go back and watch the video, you can hear me yelling before the ball even lands on the green. And then it just, I mean, it w literally rolled down to an inch uh, mm -hmm. away. And uh, Andrew Landry went on to miss his you know, 40-footer, and we went on to celebrate it. Yeah, that I mean, that to me is going to be one of the great memories. And ultimately, it was the first year of match play. It was. And Mike Holder was on the golf committee when the when the uh, committee chose to go to match play. I always wanted it to be mat, uh, metal match. I always thought it'd be better. My 71 beats your 72. I, I've never gotten resolution on that one. No one wants it. But the yeah. truth is, the very first time we went to match play, it was one of the most exciting finishes you could probably ever have in a golf tournament. It was incredible. It really yeah. was. And I mean, and I'm amazed at how many exciting finishes have since also been. There's um, been some really good ones. It's like made for TV, truthfully. Yeah, and I've got a video in my phone that I show people every once in a while to sort of point to my argument. At Oklahoma State, we had about 4,000 fans in 2011, yeah. and they had all gathered on the 18th hole to watch Sean Einhouse's putt to have to, 20-footer to have to send it to 
against Augusta State in the semis, and he made it, and there was a complete eruption of the loudest roar that may ever exist in college golf. But I contend that if we had all the matches go to 18, that maybe the final match, because you're having all the fans get to the same spot, maybe maybe it would actually finish like that, I mean, more often. And I don't think stroke play is any less exciting when it's head-to-head than match play, although every hole in match play has a either win, tie, or lose the hole. So there's pressure on every hole. I get that. But anyway, just a thought. So before yeah. we move on from that championship, you mentioned something because I opened it by saying JT told me that he really felt like you guys could do some good that week. And you said something I'm never going to forget. He casted, he casted a high ceiling for our team. Yeah. Whether, whether he truly believed it or not, he, he did it. And he had you guys believing that. So is that his greatest quality as a coach or what are some of his other great qualities? Cause I think JT's a fantastic coach. JT truly is a fantastic coach. Um, you know, I remember having reservations through the recruiting process because he didn't play golf. And um, I mean, looking back, I, what I, mean, I think, I mean, I was, gosh, it's been almost 20 years since I stepped on campus. I hate to say that out loud McGraw, uh, but it, I, I, you know, now Days kids are so advanced in where they are with swing coaches and even even track man and fitness and things like that that I really think uh, one of the things that JT did really well was focus on the the basics uh, of really of life things that are going to make you successful in whatever you know uh, venue life takes you into the you know business world or uh professional golf or coaching or whatever it may be but jt harped on basic things he wanted to put he he wanted you to have a good attitude and he wanted you to work hard and he wanted you to not make excuses Mm. uh really those were the simplistic things that he drew uh he harped onto us and then he had an extremely fair program where i mean a guy like me thrived in jt's program because our, our qualifying from the first qualifier I ever played with to the last was the exact same. It was, we had two spots available and three coaches picks. And he used to say, I don't know anybody a coaches pick. So if you want to play, go get a spot. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking like, he even used to say like, these picks aren't for you. Uh, these uh, he's like, I don't need the spots for you to qualify. I could pick whoever I want. If I want to, these spots are you for you to go get. And so for a guy like me, that's how I saw my avenue in. And I still joke with JT to this day. And I'm like 99.9% uh, think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right. And that is I did not get picked one time until my senior year in college. Mm. I played Up until that point, I probably played 40% or 35% or so of the tournaments. And I played almost all of them my senior year. But, uh, but I just viewed qualifying as my avenue to get to a tournament. And so I had to figure out how to go qualify. And when I hear, you know, these kids, a lot of these kids feel like coaches, their coach is picking on them or not now, because I'm not as with CGF anymore. But when I was, you know, I used to say, you know, there is a qualifying spot that you could go and figure <laughs> out how to get there. And uh, if one, if you beat them, I'm pretty sure coach isn't going to leave you at home. And so uh, I always just viewed that as my avenue. And that was a singular message that came from coach and, uh, I, I tried to, I tried to take advantage of that. And, um, and I, I think I did a good, a good job of that. Well, it also teaches a young kid one other thing, and that is you're not entitled to anything. 
And if somebody offers yeah. you that spot, go get it. If you don't get it, don't expect a pick. Do not. You did not earn the pick. Don't expect it. Well, and I mean, it, isn't that how pro golf works, right? Like it's not pro golf. You, <laughs> there's no picks in uh, Q school. And so, uh, you know, maybe you could say there's picks now with uh, with sponsors exemptions, but that's because people have earned those sponsors exemptions. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of I, I appreciated how simplistic and consistent JT's message was throughout my whole my, all five of my years there. Well, some of the greatest golf coaches in now, I still think it's not a disadvantage to go play for a guy who's an All-American or play the tour or has been, you know, if he's got a background in golf, that's good, too. But what JT and a guy like Bruce Hepler, Bruce played some golf, but he wasn't a great player. And Dave Williams at Houston was not a great, he wasn't even a golfer. So it's possible to not be a golfer and be a great golf coach. I think there are, uh, and I'm not sure who they all are, but there are some professional coaches in NBA and NFL who didn't basically play high school football or basketball. And it's like, I think JT would be a great college basketball coach. He'd be incredible. That's what I think. I agree. I mean, I, I think JT would do great in business. I think he would, uh, I think he would do well wherever he is because he's willing to put in the work. I mean, he was a recruiting machine. Uh, he was, uh, he, he was, like I said, he was consistent with his message. He was fair. Um, I, there, there, you know, if you, if you did the things that he asked of you, he, then you, you know, you were in his, his favor in that regard. And so, and if you didn't, then you, there were consequences and those consequences were through all the players. It wasn't just like, you know, certain players that he had issues with, but there are, there are a lot of big egos when you get in pro or high level sports. And, um, you know, the ones who really struggled with him were ones who I think, you know, they were struggling with authority. And, um, but I, I personally, I loved, I loved playing for JT. It was great. I'm glad you said every bit of that because it's all things that I know and not a lot of people outside know about JT. He's great. Um, Do you ever consider coaching, a coaching career? You know, it's funny you say that. I I considered playing pro golf for about a hot minute. I played my (laughs) last semester the best, but I ultimately, my big joke is, is if you want to know how burnout I was on golf is I was excited about my audit job in, in a business world. And so uh, I went into PwC working in uh, audit for uh, a couple of years, but about three months in, I got asked uh, if I'd had any interest in the Coastal Carolina job. And mm-hmm. I uh, really, I talked with some of my mentors about it and uh, was really considering it. And then kind of at the last minute, uh, the plug got pulled and they went in a different direction and uh, and decided not to, but you know, there's part of me that wonders, I probably really would have enjoyed it. I don't think I would want the lifestyle now, no offense mm-hmm. coach, but, yep. uh, I don't think I would have wanted the long-term lifestyle, but I love, you know, I love players and I love golf and I, I think I would have enjoyed it, uh, for a few years, but I didn't do it. Okay. You didn't do it, but you, you were a coach because you yep. went to work for an organization, a wonderful ministry called college golf fellowship. I've had several guys on here who have been involved with it one way or another, whether it's Webb Simpson as a PGA Tour board member or uh, just different guys that have been on here that have been involved. College Golf Fellowship has been a part of my life since 1998 when Brad Payne and Stephen Bunn were walking around at a college golf tournament in South Carolina. And I don't know who pointed in my direction, but but they came and they were um, 
you want to go to a Bible study tonight? Oh, sure I do. Who are you people? <laughs> and they were a two-man wrecking crew at the time. That was it. But uh, yeah. tell me about your college golf fellowship experience. I know you were there many, many years and did a great job. And I got to see you at yeah. a lot of tournaments. Well, I got introduced to College Golf Fellowship through a guy named Seth Thornton. I don't know if you remember that name. You probably mm-hmm. don't. He played at North Texas, and uh, he had come to Christ through College Golf Fellowship and went on to go in, into ministry in Houston. He was a good player, and I was playing in the Houston City Am. And Seth just told me to, hey, be on the lookout for this great ministry. And I had become a Christian through Young Life in high school. And I, uh, yeah, so I just had heard about it, and I was expecting um to learn about it. And I remember October of my freshman year, Brad Payne came down and basically it was as simplistic as, Hey, we're going to do this retreat in December at Ben Crane's house. And it's going to be at his house at Vaquero. And there's going to be like 50 guys, 50 guys there. And I'm like, well that, and it's free. And I'm like, okay, well I'm going to go, I'm going to go there. And I went and who else was there other than Mike McGraw. And so (laughs) Mike McGraw was uh, a part of many of my first college golf fellowship retreat experiences, but I remember a guy named Todd Wagner uh, got up and he taught the Bible in a way that I had just never heard it. And man, it just, it floored me and it drew me in and I developed a real close relationship with Brad Payne that week and then went on to have a good relationship with Marcus Jones and uh, Steve Burdick and Stephen Bunn. And I, pretty much just through the rest of my college career, just plugged into pretty much anything college golf fellowship did, and then took it upon myself to, you know, start things with on my team with on our team. We had some great guys on our team. We did Bible study within our team. Uh, we wrote, roped guys into going to retreats together. And um, it, it was truly life-changing uh, for me in that I had a very immature faith uh, in college, but I learned how to, or really what it meant to live out my faith. Uh, and I gave a lot of credit to College Golf Fellowship for that. And, you know, specifically Brad Payne and his and his uh, mentorship and just friendship with me, but also the people that, that College Golf Fellowship put me around. I learned so much from the great teachers that I got to sit under and listen to. And um, I'm just eternally grateful for them. And so I went into public accounting for a couple of years um and i was doing stuff on the side with university of houston and rice and hbu in houston and then college golf fellowship came and asked if i had any interest in joining them so i left after two years in public accounting and i joined college golf fellowship as the houston rep and i was here for like just over 10 years uh with them until this past uh two septembers ago when uh, i left but uh man i i love college golf fellowship and i love all those guys and I'm just eternally grateful for that ministry. Well, I am too. And one of the things I tell people when they ask me about the ministry is, that, you know, what makes it such a good ministry? And what I think it is, is, is these ministers, these young men that are going to come and, and, and speak into these young players, they come on your campus, but they don't, they don't force it on a kid. They develop relationships. It's the most relational ministry I think I've ever seen. And so by the time the kid is ready to, maybe delve into it a little bit more. He's already best buds with this guy. And you guys are masters at it. You were when you were in there. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's a yeah. great Really, really good at that. Uh, current occupation. Tell me exactly what you're doing right now. Yeah. So two years, I, two years ago, I joined a uh, uh, independent RIA registered investment advisor here in Houston. And I'm the director of business development for 
them. I we essentially manage uh, people's wealth situations uh, for predominantly high net worth, to ultra high net worth individuals. And so I come alongside families who've been given the unique responsibility of stewarding a lot of resources, and we try to help them do that well. Now you don't have a heck of a lot of college golf coaches in there, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't think prospected so. in the college golf coaching world in a while. <laughs> I didn't think so. So I know you still play golf. I know you also compete. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of days ago, you played with one of my players, Johnny Kiefer, in the U.S. Amateur Qualifying. So talk to me about your desire to still want to play the game. And tell me about Johnny. You got to see Johnny up close for 36 holes. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Johnny and I had some great conversation about this, but – What's interesting is I actually feel like I'm a better golfer now than I was in college and I don't ever practice. That's not a lie. I literally don't practice. And I was telling Johnny that I, I feel like one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons that I, I feel this way is, is because I now feel like I can bat a thousand every time I play golf at making good decisions um, and I think that if I do, I don't have to play perfectly to um, to be able to put together a good golf score. And I think in college, I mean, I was way better physically, could hit way more shots um, than I ever uh, could, that I ever can now. I mean, I definitely, I, I don't hit it near as far and I don't have near the amount of shots, but I'm so much smarter now. And I was talking with Johnny about this, about how um, I feel like when I look back, I'm, I just the, um, I took so many unnecessary risks and I really try to play a lot of boring golf now and, uh, and just think my way. I think decade, uh, has been, I don't use decade personally, but I think the thought process behind decade is brilliant because in a lot of ways, decade is just showing you kind of the reality of your situation and in what is the, what is the, um, not the safest bet. That's not the right one, but like the appropriate lines and clubs and into different shots. And I, I just relate to that so much now. And I've been able to, you know, keep my game up fairly, uh, uh, fairly well. And I, yeah, I, I still enjoy getting to play, but man, it's fun playing with a guy like Johnny. Cause he, when he hit driver and I hit driver, I was probably about 40 yards behind him and at least, and uh he's got a great game he's obviously he obviously knows what he's doing and uh we really i just love walking with guys like that because uh they're just at a formative time in their life and um i i hope to be a positive uh and helpful voice into guys like that lives uh, i know they have many voices and i've just seen uh guys that have good voices around them often end up in a better place than guys who don't have good voices around them so Totally agree with that. And I think Johnny's a smart enough kid that he listens. And yeah. I try everything I can to recruit kids that will listen and are open to learning. Uh, and as a coach, I have to be the same. I have to listen and be open to learning. But but I'm, I'm glad you got to play with him. Um, yeah, I don't think you'll ever hit it as far as he does because you're going the other direction now. I am going the other direction. It feels <laughs> like fast. <laughs> oh, well, that's okay. Well, listen, hey, um, I... Um, I've really enjoyed this. This has been about 50 minutes of just kind of reconnecting. You got to talk about some really fun times in college golf, and we got to reconnect. I, it's been too long since I've seen you. I recruit in Houston. Surely we can have dinner together sometime. Let's do it. Big 12 match play, right? Y'all still going to Houston Oaks? We are. You'll have to come up there. I'll buy you dinner. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Matt, thanks so much for 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me today.